0: Welcome to this edition of the Alabama Historical Association's podcast program. I'm your host, Marty Olaf, and I talk with people who conduct interesting research and do interesting things concerning Alabama history. You can find out more about the Alabama Historical Association, a membership organization devoted to Alabama history, by pointing your browser at our website, www.alabamahistory.net. Our podcast today will be a little different. Because the Alabama Historical Association postponed its 2020 convention, Secretary Mark Wilson has arranged video panel discussions about the future of Alabama history shown live on Facebook. The AHA recorded these sessions, and to reach a larger audience, we are proud to present them as edited audio in the Alabama History Podcast.
1: Hello, and welcome to this online panel on 2020 and the future of Alabama history, sponsored by the Alabama Historical Association and the Caroline Marshall Drawn Center for the Arts and Humanities in the College of Liberal Arts at Auburn University. I am Mark Wilson, secretary of the AHA and director of the Drawn Center. We begin our program today with a welcome from AHA president, Frazine Taylor.
2: On behalf of the Alabama Historical Association family, I want to welcome you to our panel discussion with panelists Steve Murray, Derek Moton, and Tara White on our 2020 and the future of Alabama history. Thank you, President Taylor.
1: We are delighted to have our panelists today. Steve Murray is director of the Alabama Department of Archives and History. Dr. Tara White teaches history at Wallace State Community College in Selma. Dr. Darren Moton teaches history at Alabama State University in Montgomery. Welcome folks. 2020. What a year! And we are barely just halfway through. Just a few weeks ago, the trustees of the Alabama Department of Archives and History released a statement, acknowledging the agency's contributions to systemic racism and recommitting itself to documenting and telling a fully inclusive history of the state and to building a more diverse agency. I've asked our panelists to respond to that statement and hear from our guests on their hopes for the study of Alabama history. Steve, let's begin with you. Thank you, Mark. It's good to be
3: with you all, and I'm and, uh, so grateful to the AHA for putting together this program today and what will be, I think, one installation in an ongoing series of important conversations among the public history community and the general public moving forward. As Mark said, the statement is available on our website, and I won't go through that in great detail, but I wanted to provide a little bit of context for how that statement came about. Back in early June, when... Uh, Like everyone else in the country, we were reflecting on the horrific murder of George Floyd in Minnesota and thinking about what that meant for us as a country with relation to our racial history, issues of policing, and then increasingly widening discussion of American history and the historical landscape in our country. We as an organization were reflecting on how we could be of help in that situation. Like every historical organization, our the ADAH has had uh, public service at the core of its mission since its beginning, and we wanted to be at the table for these important conversations about the issues confronting our country today. One logical way for us to think about doing that was to point to some online resources that we had created that could be of use to Americans, uh, especially white Americans who were thinking about some of these issues seriously and deeply, maybe for the first time and trying to gain information about how the past brought us to the present and and what we can all do as individuals to become more aware of the issues surrounding systemic racism. And we had some resources like that available online and they had recently been compiled in a new website called Alabama History at Home that we stood up in quick response to the pandemic earlier in the late spring and summer. We uh, knew, though, that presenting some of those digital resources as part of a solution without acknowledging our own agency's role in creating the problem 100 years ago was just disingenuous. And it seemed important to us to preface those efforts with some frank acknowledgments about our own agency's history and how it had created the situation where we were working with, for much of the last 120 years have been working with a distorted perspective of Alabama history that was created because of deficits in our collections related to African American history and contributions to our state and nation, but also because the Department of Archives and History, early in its history, was an active contributor to the movement across the South during those years to create what we now know as the lost cause interpretation of slavery, the Civil War, and Reconstruction. So in two ways, our agency had helped to create major symptoms of systemic racism. Being a deficit in terms of the material records and artifacts that helped to tell the story of African American history, but also this mistaken interpretation now discredited by historians for explaining those important turning points in American history. Once we laid out those acknowledgments in writing, it seemed crystal clear that if we were going to proceed, if we were going to have a presence in these conversations, that there was a moral imperative for us to incorporate those acknowledgements in the statement. In the early 20th century, we knew that our agency had played a leading role in shaping the understanding of the past as it existed then, and in shaping decisions about our collections here. It seemed appropriate now in the early 21st century for our agency to have a leadership role again, this time in trying to facilitate a broader, more inclusive understanding of Alabama's past and the long simmering issues that have really come to the fore to us in the last couple of months. That's how it took shape when I've been asked, why did you feel it was important to make this statement? It really comes down to to three points. One is our desire to serve as an honest broker in these conversations uh, about racial history and commemoration, that role requires honesty about the past. The second is that we know firsthand and anecdotally that many African-American Alabamians have still today a deep distrust of Alabama governmental institutions. And that's for good reason, because of the history of positions and actions taken by state government in the past. And that some African-Americans today do not feel that there's a place here for them or they may not feel welcome in our agency. We are desirous of and and determined to move past that situation. We want all Alabamians to feel that this agency tells their story, represents their history responsibly, and is a place where people can come together in goodwill to uh, talk about the past and help to think about a better future ahead. And then thirdly, the statement is part of an important process for us as an organization in coming to terms with our own history as an institution. Thinking about those first two founders, Thomas and and Marie Owen, who did so much of the work that is described in the uh, statement, but also did tremendous work in building the capacity that we have today to serve as a collecting institution, as a cultural resource, as a state history museum, in a place that supports good history education in the classroom, all of those good things that we have today are also built on the work done by Tom and Marie Owen in the early and mid 20th century. So we have some work to do just reconciling ourselves to the history of our agency, taking an honest look at the poor decisions that were made at the time, but taking also the benefit of what they did and using both of those together awareness, and that capacity to make better decisions about
1: where we go in the future. Thank you, Steve. Dr. White, love to hear from you.
2: Thank you. Thank you. Um, As a Southerner, as a historian, and as an Alabamian of at least six generations, I was really pleased to see the statement of recommitment by the leadership of the Alabama Department of Archives and History. The statement was long overdue, and, you know, it is unfortunate that it took the murder of George Floyd and the resulting protests around the world to get the world, including Alabama, into a position of reflection, but also into the spirit of atonement. It's unfortunate that George Floyd's death, Breonna Taylor's death, Ahmaud Arbery's death, And the deaths of so many others brought us to this historic place, but here we are. It's also unfortunate but refreshing that the Alabama Archives chose this time to to acknowledge the reality of systemic racism in the lives of Alabamians over the past 200 years. And so as a museum professional and public historian, I've long lamented some of those things that Steve talked about, the dearth of, of sources, the dearth of material culture collections in the state archives and the unwillingness of people to include those voices because, like I said, my family has been here for more than six generations. And so those sources and voices are necessary for telling a fuller history of the state of Alabama. I read the statement of recommitment. And I'm looking forward to solid actions on behalf of the archives and also not just the archives, because, I mean, they're one institution, but also solid actions on behalf of the historical community. I was very pleased to see that the AHA took this on and was really serious about making a commitment to telling a broader story and encouraging historians to look at a broader story for, for the state of Alabama, so...
1: Thank you. Thank you, Dr. White. Dr. Moton.
2: I'm very pleased to be
1: a part of this
4: conversation this afternoon. I've said this publicly, but I think it bears repeating. I commend the Alabama Department of Archives and History's board, as well as C for coming up with this recommitment statement. It's extremely important, it's, it's much needed, and I am very heartened by what I have seen, and I just hope that this continues. Unfortunately, George Floyd's death is a culmination of many um, such events that have happened in our country. It seems like those moments present an opportunity for us to reflect on you know, who we are as Americans. and what is this thing that we call American history, because when we talk about Southern history, it's very much a part of American history. And I think about uh, Mother Emanuel AME Church in Charleston, South Carolina, and the senseless uh, murders of the parishioners of that church and the young man who committed those murders and conversations about the Confederate battle flag and and the Confederacy. And that was another moment where we, as a nation, paused to have this conversation, but that conversation didn't last too long. I hope there there's something different about this conversation that we're having right now. And I think There is certainly something different about the mixed generations of persons who have demonstrated and protested and agitated for uh, substantive changes in in our society. I'm seeing things that I didn't think would happen so quickly, um, such as the Mississippi legislature deciding to change its state flag, the Montgomery School Board deciding to rename three high schools in Montgomery, namely Jeff Davis, uh, Robert E. Lee, and Sidney Lanier. There's a lot to talk about. There are a lot of demons to exercise in this process. So I hope we don't get weary when we talk about an all-inclusive history in this country. It is still true that the archives at primarily historically Black colleges and universities have the vast deposits of historical records for African Americans in this country. Tuskegee had the lynchings files. I don't know that there's a white university or college anywhere in the US that collected data on lynchings. And I'm thinking about the Moreland Spengarn collection, the Amistad collection, the Schomburg collection, We need to do a lot to preserve this history, to discuss these artifacts. So I'm happy we're having this conversation and I look forward to this afternoon.
1: Thank you and it's interesting to be a historian or a student of history and to realize you're living in a really important moment of history what you're talking about related to the future of research and topics that perhaps haven't been covered or are ripe for continued uncovering, uh, leads to a question, Jane Dineke, who would like to hear of any plans to clarify the history of Black Reconstruction in Alabama and possibly creating a database of collections that may exist in churches, HBCUs, or private collections. So talk a little bit about that period and what you hope may come out in the future in terms of research.
2: I'll jump in. For Reconstruction, I found it interesting to be here during the sesquicentennial. The sesquicentennial celebrations ended, and of course, that would have been also of of the Civil War, I mean. And of course, at the end of the sesquicentennial civil, Civil Wars, the beginning of the sesquicentennial for Reconstruction, and I found it really interesting that there weren't any celebrations anywhere for Reconstruction, but I understood history. And understood that uh, reconstruction was not a time that people celebrated, but I feel that it was. It is because we're still in that period, right? We got about seven more years, right? And so it's it's still an opportunity for us to revisit the dealing with the questions that we have now. These questions start there. I think this is still a wonderful opportunity to revisit. Reconstruction 150 years later, and to start to delve into some of these questions about race, about the place of African Americans in not only the, you know, just ordinary everyday society in the South and in Alabama, but also the place of African Americans in the political process. Fortunately, this, the voting rights movement culminates here in Alabama in Selma. You have the Voting Rights Act of 1965, and unfortunately, you've had many reversals in the past few years culminating in Alabama again with Shelby County versus Boulder. So I think it's important for us to go back to that. But there have been some reinterpretations of um, Reconstruction in Alabama, and I encourage the To go back and look at Richard Bailey and Michael Fitzgerald, I've done some some good work reinterpreting the Reconstruction period in Alabama, and there have been a couple others who are doing really good work, and so the work is happening there. One (laughs) such work I really hope would also happen is the look at the U.S. Colored Troops units that originated here in Alabama. um, I think that work in that area would be fruitful as well. Some people have already started kind of plugging those holes in reconstruction, but we can encourage students to do more.
1: Great. Thank you. Steve, did you want to respond to that? Well, I'll say, yeah, I'm glad to see
3: Mike Fitzgerald online with us today, and his work is, is extremely important for understanding what was happening during those years. Another way that Collecting institutions can help facilitate that is through improved access to the materials that we do have, and through exhibitions. I would point to last year's exhibition here at the Archives called We the People on Alabama's six state constitutions, and it was really a remarkable way to cast a light on very important chapters throughout Alabama's history, none more important than that ushered in by the 1868 state constitution, which guaranteed the civil rights of Alabamians It incorporated at the state level the effects of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments, created opportunities for African Americans in public life, created a true public education system in the state for the first time. One of the lessons to be taken away from the fantastic story of that constitution is that that kind of progress can be undone, and it was undone in the 1875 and 1901 constitutions. We're also steadily working to try to increase access, not just for scholars, but for the general public and for classroom teachers, educators. Just some examples of some things that we're doing now that touch on Reconstruction includes the digitization of our Civil War and Reconstruction era newspapers that are now online. All of those that we have available either have been scanned here or are part of some national databases Uh, We are currently scanning all of the governor's papers from the Civil War and Reconstruction era, and those will be coming online soon. Coming up in the fall, we're going to start a project to scan all of the Alabama Supreme Court case files from 1820 through Reconstruction. All of those open and provide immediate access then to extremely important records and evidence of the experiences of African-Americans in Alabama during that time. I think it's a combination of improved access, promoting scholarship and research by historians and getting these materials into the classroom.
1: Thank you, Dr. Moten. I'd love your, your thoughts on the reconstruction question, but then beyond that as well, what other topics are you hoping in the future students will take a, a part of a more a holistic effort?
4: Well, when I think of Reconstruction, I think of two books in particular, um, Du Bois's Black Reconstruction. I also think of Rayford Logan's The Portrayal of the Negro. And I really do think that uh, Reconstruction was a portrayal. It was a promise made, but not a promise kept. I think politics basically sabotaged. And of course, Lincoln's assassination had a lot to do with the unfulfillment of Reconstruction. There was perhaps an important moment where the commitment of the federal government of the United States was really put to a test, and it largely failed that test. The other part about Reconstruction that I think that is really important, or the legacy of Reconstruction, is that what we see currently in American society, the the economic disparities between Black families and white families, is mind-boggling. That's the only way I can describe it in the wealthiest, uh, most powerful country in the world. It begs the question, what do you do when a federal government frees four plus million people or formerly enslaved um, persons and then give them no means to take care of themselves? The loss of black farms in the South the loss of black home ownership in the United States, the lack of affordable housing. These are the topics that I think we have to wrestle with because it's all connected to this history. And so the second part of your question, Mark, a lot of people think that the civil rights movement ended with the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. We're still in a movement. All Americans don't have equal opportunity. All Americans do not have equal justice. So we're still striving to make this country the city on the hill. It's going to take all of our efforts. It's, it just can't be a subset of Americans want this to happen. This has to be the goal of all Americans. I say to my white friends that you know integration is their burden, it's not mine. Because if it's going to happen in this country, it's going to happen because there's a will within white Americans to make it happen. Just demographically, I can't be every place that I may need to be to be that one voice in the room that says, "Aha, uh-huh, you know, you need to consider this person," or we need to sort of think about our workforce in a different way. We're challenged, I think, in, on many levels. I think it was Daniel Patrick Monaghan that came up with the expression benign neglect. Well, if I'm the person being neglected, then it's not benign. We all have a role to play in the type of fair and just country that we want to have. I was talking to someone recently and we were talking about Brian Stevenson's book, Just Mercy. And I said to, to the person I was talking to, I wouldn't even expect in communist Russia that a person could be placed on death row before they go to trial. And yet that happened. The persons who were responsible for that miscarriage were able to keep their jobs and to serve in government um, positions as district attorney, as, as county sheriff, This goes back to what Steve said about people losing faith or not having any faith in government. These are the types of issues. And so if this does not lead to a conversation about how we make our criminal justice system fair, then I think we're not taking full advantage of this moment.
1: Well, and I wonder if you may all have comments on whether you are hopeful this moment will encourage everyone to be more historically minded and to ask those difficult questions of the past. We have a question out here from Steve Davis. Is there a movement to actually teach history in Alabama schools?
2: Let me tell you a story. Of course, I teach history in community college. What I'm realizing is that students don't get much <laughs> in K-12. And so they come to me with history that they might have learned on the street or history that they learned in elementary school, you know, or all these wonderful myths and fables. And so I find it disheartening and in some instances terrifying that students have such a lack of historical knowledge and don't really understand not only the content of history and the context of history, but also how historians do what they do. So that's that's part of it. I think that in this current climate of test and retest and making sure that we have the three R's right, the history has gotten the short shrift. I took um, history in high school and I didn't see myself in the story of America. And I knew that we were here, like I said, six generations, right? But nobody talked about us. So I made sure that I passed the AP test so I would never have to take history again. God has a sense of humor. But it was understanding the connection between the past and the present um, as I was studying the civil rights movement and understanding the connection then between the past and the present as I was studying reconstruction and looking at the past racial um, situation and current racial situation, and that was you know, some years ago. I came to understand the importance of history and decided to study more, but I'm afraid that many of our students are encouraged to not engage with history I also feel that it's unfortunate that people are discouraging people to major in the liberal arts because I think the part that makes us human, the humanities, we study those, the literature, the thoughts, the dreams, the aspirations of all people. History shows us some of that as well, and our students are not equipped to grapple with some of those questions and not equipped to really articulate some of the things that Ordinary citizens should ask about how our society runs, how our society operates, and responsibilities of government to its citizenry. But if you didn't understand that there was a responsibility in the, the way that that's evolved over time, then you don't know to ask the question. And I think um, that's what we're, we're um, robbing our students. That's how, one of the ways we're robbing our students. So... I don't know. (laughs) I don't know. Um, um, But yeah, we're we're going to. I I think it's going to be a a part of the job of the historical community to really make that case. And historians have started to make that case. There has to be a broader conversation in the education community, in, in general, about why these things are important and what we are robbing our students of when they don't have the capacity and the tools to ask these questions.
1: Steve?
3: I would say I am cautiously optimistic about where we are and and where we're headed. This moment feels different in many ways than previous episodes that we've seen, even in 2015 and again in 2017. I think there's an interesting surge of interest on the part of I'm speaking mainly of white people who newly identify themselves as advocates and allies of African-Americans and addressing this, these issues. There's a couple of things for us to be careful about and watchful for. One is what happens when the current debate over monuments and building names is largely resolved. And we have still remaining the very deep and I would argue more difficult issues to address related to economic disparity and access to education and and healthcare and those other uh, issues of related systemic racism, they're going to be more difficult to resolve than moving a monument. There's gonna be a lot more discussions and, and history needs to be there as a resource for those conversations as well. I'm optimistic because we've got ahead of us in 2026, the 250th anniversary of the country there've been a lot of discussions in the public history world about point of focus is going to be in that anniversary what does the semi-quincentennial look like how does it compare to the bicentennial in 1976 and it seems to me that the past 2 months have answered most of those questions for us this is not a 2020 episode this is a 2020 moving forward years period of i think reckoning with the past and thinking about how we can make better decisions going forward. And it seems to me that there's a focus that has been brought to what the planning that needs to happen for 2026 and where that energy lies. I would say two other things, one related to to classroom instruction in history. Uh, History and social studies and civics have been pushed to the sidelines of the classroom. We have to get those back to the center of the classroom experience of our young people That requires policy at work. It requires historical organizations and concerned citizens being part of those discussions whenever the social studies course of study comes up for review. There's a place for public and history organizations to contact colleges of education and to express our concern about the lack of preparation of especially elementary school teachers who have minimal required training in history of any field world, U.S., state, whatever, and then are mandated to walk into a classroom and teach a state course of study on topics that they themselves may not have been exposed to since they were in middle school or high school. That's a serious problem and something that we need to continue working on. And thirdly, it seems like this train is moving with the energy that we're seeing this year and some things that are going to be changing. I am mindful that there are some Americans who are not enthusiastic about jumping on this train and i think it's important as we continue this journey together toward a community that is mindful of our past and addresses it openly and uses it constructively to remember that there are people that we don't we want to be sure we don't leave them behind on, on the path behind us as we continue that journey ahead this is a more difficult conversation for some people than others and it's not to Excuse it, it's just the reality of it. There's a great role for the AHA here and other groups as well, but to be a facilitator of those considerations for the benefit of people who have a harder time with distinguishing honest assessment of the past from criticism or denigration of their family history and their ancestors. And we need to be able to have conversations that talk about how we can do that constructively without people feeling like they are personally attacked in in the process.
1: And history should be right at the heart of that conversation. Uh, Here's what I wanna do now. I wanna bring in a question from President Raising Toto of the AHA. Are there opportunities for partnership with HBCUs where there could be a future that helps realize some of these things that we're talking about? And then after, Steve, after you respond, Dr. Moten, I want to I come back to you uh, related to some comments and questions that are out there. Um, uh, I want to get your advice um, as communities and entities are talking about changing names of buildings um, and, and, and other things. Um, you know what, What's going through your mind uh, related to that? Um, and then I suspect we'll end our program. But Steve, speak to this, if you will.
3: There's an interesting model right now underway across the South called Invisible Histories that is a multi-agency collaboration to collect materials related to LGBTQ history. It's it's an interesting model where a nonprofit has stood up to be kind of the the clearinghouse for working with organizations, museums across the region and archives to try to get materials into appropriate repositories. We're always interested in working with our neighbors and our partners, and just to underscore a point that I think Darren made earlier about the important role played by HBCU Special Collections and, and Archives in preserving material that wasn't being preserved in predominantly white institutions is, is crucial. The short answer to that is yes. We have to think about what that looks like and, and how we go about setting goals for those There's always so much more work to be done just in understanding what's in our repositories across the state. There have been previous grant-funded efforts to try to build centralized databases of those collections, and it always poses a challenge to every institution from the state archives to the smallest community repository and college archives We all are looking for more resources to be able to staff those kinds of projects and support that. We are absolutely desiring to be good collaborators.
1: Thank you for that. Dr. Moden, related to this moment and reimagining and renaming, what questions do you ask um, and what questions do you hope communities will ask that will be inclusive of many voices?
4: Well. One of the questions that I think that we should consider when we think about the names of monuments and and buildings and parks and other places is the context in which these events happen. One of the things that still amuses and amazes me about the conversation about Confederate monuments and Confederate parks and, and so forth is that no one ever asked the question, well, what did black folks think when these parks were being named, when these statues were being erected? And I guarantee you that black folks had opinions. And I guarantee you that some of them were unhappy that this was taking place. So I think the names of buildings, statues, monuments are important. I think they matter. I attended Benjamin Banneker Elementary School. Uh, so long before I ever stepped foot in Washington, D.C., I knew about Benjamin Banneker's role in the design of that city. As school kids, we were taught that we should be proud that we attended um, Benjamin Banneker School, and we did. I mean, in, I was in elementary school 100 years ago. I think it's an important, but, you know, these things are almost cyclical. I, you know, I I would remind folks that there were parents in New Orleans back in the 1990s that pushed to have the schools that bore the names of Confederate soldiers and uh, and so forth renamed. These schools were in their communities, and these are the schools that their daughters and sons attended. I don't think it's a small matter. Well, I agree with Steve that once these issues are resolved, and I think they will be resolved, what are we going to do next? Because the conversation cannot end once um, Jeff Davis is renamed and once Robert E. Lee is renamed. And so for me, it goes back to how do we make the United States a country where all people have an opportunity to succeed and that your zip code doesn't determine your life's chances. One of the things we all know about public schools is that it really didn't matter if your parents did not speak English and it really didn't matter if your parents were not born in the United States. that you had through those public schools an opportunity to receive an education that would give you an opportunity and chances in this society that your parents may not have had. I want these conversations to continue, but I don't want them to be reduced to just the names of athletic teams and school buildings and, and parks and monuments, because while that's important, the other important piece for me is how do we give people a chance to succeed in a country that is very blessed in terms of industries, in terms of education, in terms of wealth. If poverty could be eliminated anywhere in the world, it would seem to me it could be eradicated in the United States.
2: Thank you for that.
1: Dr. White, would you like to respond to that as well?
2: Yes, once the monuments are gone, once we rename high schools, the real work is going to be in policy. The real work is going to be in making sure that, regardless of where you are, and I'm speaking specifically in Montgomery, where I live, where I'm from, where my family's been for four generations, where I was educated, the real work is going to be making sure that, regardless of where you are in Montgomery, you have a quality. Um, education, or regardless of where you are in the state of Alabama, you have access to a quality education. I was very fortunate. I I went to schools on the west side of Montgomery, and um, I attended some of the poorest schools in the city of Montgomery. But I had teachers who were dedicated and devoted to us and gave me an amazing foundation. So, I ended up at the other end of the spectrum I went to high school at Lanier High School in the LAMP program, which is the top program in the state. And so, again, best of and worst of. But at that time, this was the opportunity. I've always wondered why my friends who went to Carver High School didn't have the same opportunities that I had at Lanier and at LAMP, some of whom were much smarter than I was, but they didn't have the resources. And so I think it's imperative for us to start looking at these policies on education on the local and state level and making these changes so that zip codes should matter. But not just education. We're talking health care. We are in the middle of a pandemic. People are dying, <laughs> literally dying. I know two or three people who were very dear to me who, who've passed on access to quality health care. That's a whole nother question. Not just that. We talk about um, neighborhoods, neighborhood real estate is connected to schools, is connected to health outcomes, academic outcomes, life outcomes. You know, why does it it matter? And so there's a really big policy shift that needs to happen on the local, on the state, and on the national level. And I'm really hoping that our officials are courageous enough to want to tackle these problems so that every Alabamian have better opportunities and better outcomes. And it's not about where you were born. It's not about where you start out. It's about where you want to be.
1: Thank you for that. Steve, Tara, Darren, we thank you for what you are doing in Alabama history and allowing us to be on the journey with
0: you thank you for joining us today. This has been another edition of the Alabama Historical Association podcast program. Our music is the traditional tune, Whistle By, performed at City Stages in 1996 by James Bryan and Carl Jones. It's provided courtesy of the Alabama Folklife Association, which you can find on the web at alabamafolklife.org.